Good morning, friends. Welcome again to The Digital Gathering. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery, and I want to invite you to meet me in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians is in the New Testament, uh, very near the end of our Bibles, if you're having a, a physical Bible and looking for it in there. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read uh the second half of the chapter for us, started in verse 11 and then going all the way through verse 22. Verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, a lot going on there, and we don't have time to unpack every single last detail of this, but we are going to talk a little bit more about this vision of the church that we get here in Ephesians chapter 2 in a moment. Before we get to that, I want to begin with the exercise that we started with last week. Just put your hands over your heart. Feel your heart beating. Remember that you are a human being, flesh and blood pumping through your veins, air into your lungs. Take a moment and just remember your body, your humanness. And then take your hands and extend them outward, open-handed like this, inviting God's presence, inviting the gift today. We don't know exactly what God wants to say to us or what the gift might be in this crazy time in which we live, but we are open and receptive for whatever He wants to do. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would move this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us. That this thing that you are doing in the world, this new humanity that you are building, this peace that you are offering is something that we desperately need and want. And so for some of us, God, this morning that might mean an invitation into this that might mean a challenge or a sacrifice that we need to make on behalf of this. 
wherever it might be, whatever it is, God, we come before you now in this moment open-handed, ready to receive what you want to give to us. We pray this today in Jesus' powerful name. And everybody said, Amen. All right, well, this fall, we are considering what it means to be countercultural, right? You saw the title of the conversation flash on your screen just a moment ago. Countercultural, what does it mean for us to be different? How is this thing called the church different from the ways of the world? That phrase comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the ways of the world. Now, many people over the years have studied the early church. What, what happened in the wake of Jesus' life and death and resurrection? How did this thing go from this tiny group of people with the odds stacked against them to then uh, within a couple hundred years toppling the Roman Empire? 120 scared to death people trapped in in dark hidden rooms in Jerusalem, claiming that their leader had been executed and come back from the dead. I mean, the whole story is crazy. We talked about this last Sunday, but I want to say it again. Remember that this first church uh, had some momentum. As you read through the book of Acts, chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, we see the momentum growing. So much so that the, the church starts to get backlash. Right, persecution later on, executions, riots, uh, angry government officials, people end up in jail and arrested. And yet, in the midst of all of these difficult, difficult circumstances, all these trials, explosive growth. The repeated refrain in the book of Acts is this they grew in numbers, the kingdom grew in numbers, the good news grew and spread. Acts 2.47, Acts 4, 4, 6.1, 9.31, 12.24, 16.5, 19.20, 28-31. Uh, it just repeats this over and over again. The good news spread. The numbers increased. This is all very interesting, again, because uh, American Christians, we love to cry persecution. We, uh, we worry about it. We... we um, Uh, fear it, we run from it in all kinds of ways. We cry persecution whenever something makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, what if persecution is actually what we need in order to see a movement of God, to see the the mission of God move forward? It certainly uh, was a part of how the good news of Jesus spread during this early church phase. So again, this question, how does this ragtag group of 120 scared Jesus followers upend the bloodiest, most dominant empire in human history to that point? Well, there's been a a number of studies about this. One that we've cited before comes from historian and sociologist Rodney Stark. And and Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in Just a Few centuries. And and central to this conversation we're having this fall called counterculture is this particular quote. Rodney Stark lists a number of different reasons why the early church grew and had an impact, but he would say that there's a top two, top two reasons. And he says it this way. The Roman Empire was stingy with their bodies. I'm sorry. The Roman Empire was stingy with their resources and promiscuous with their bodies. Said another way, they give nobody their money and everybody their body. And then along come the Christians, the little Jesuses, and they gave practically no one their bodies and everyone their money. 
The early church was counter-cultural. It wasn't different for the sake of being different. It didn't try to be weird for the sake of being weird, but they pressed against the culture in very important ways. And as a result, they offered a different way of being human, a different way of being a community. The church, as it existed and went about its business, offered a critique of the culture in which it found itself in. Now, all year here at Discovery, we've been considering this concept of renewal. These moments where God's uh, movement, His activity, His Spirit shows up in very real ways and there, there's transformation that happens broadly. And this question of does God still move like this in our world today? Is renewal still possible? And we've been learning that at least in part, renewal happens when we lean into our distinctiveness. When we recognize our counterculturalness and don't shy away from it, but again, lean into it in such a way that we demonstrate, hey, a different way is possible. A different world is possible. This is what the early church did. Of course, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to imagine a different world. And as a result, they told a different story. And that is what this conversation, this counterculture conversation is all about. And I am so excited for what's already kind of percolating here in our community as we dig into this. Now, we're going to do this in three parts. Next month, we're going to get into that generosity piece, right? That, that, that part in which they were, the, the early Christians were extremely generous with their stuff, their, their possessions, their money. And then at the beginning of the year, we'll look at the body part. What does it mean for us to be stingy with our bodies? And there's probably some loaded uh, stuff there, and I can't wait to get into that with you guys when we turn the calendar over. But these first couple of weeks, before we get to those, <clears throat> those two things that Rodney Stark lists, the first part of this, we felt like we needed to do some foundational work here. And so we're just beginning by remembering this concept that we are different, that we are distinct. And the big, big idea of the series comes from these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we are chosen, royal priesthood, holy nation, special possession, distinct for a purpose, to point people towards the good news of Jesus. When we start to follow Jesus, we don't go on this journey alone. This is not uh, a solo quest or personal spirituality. We join a people, a family, a community, this thing called the church that is fundamentally different from other communities, families, organizations. And this is what the writer Paul is after here in Ephesians chapter 2. He's speaking to, writing to a young church. And again, he wants to fire their imaginations for this whole other way of being, this different world. Now, one of the deeply disturbing ways of the world's today is our collective lack of imagination. We see this in our divided binary categories, right? It's always this 
or that. You are either for this thing or you are against it. You're a Democrat or you're a Republican. You love LeBron or you hate LeBron. There are always and only two options. No imagination for a different way. And so this guy, Paul, who, who was once completely an either-or person before he meets Jesus, writes a letter to, the, to a church again in this place called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is an interesting geographical location. It's in modern-day Turkey. It was a coastal city, and it was a center of commerce and influence. And, and probably the primary way in which it was uh, influential was uh, it, it was a center for the worship of Artemis, the Greek goddess, a Greek fertility goddess. And there was a temple there. It's actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so here's this tiny, young, emerging church in, in this uh, metropolitan city, the center of worship of a whole other god, asking the question, well, what do we do? How can we even have an impact in a place like this? And this could be a very paralyzing question. Is it even possible for us to make a difference here? And so Paul writes them a letter. And what's interesting about this letter, the first three chapters of it, he doesn't tell them anything about what they're supposed to be doing. It's all about who they are. It's all about them having their holy imagination fired up for this new reality, this new world that begins with Jesus with his resurrection in Christ, a whole new world is possible. Now, evidence of this new reality <clears throat> can be found where divided people move from far away to near, where barriers are destroyed, where walls are torn down, where there is peace between people. Paul says this four times in that passage that we just read. Peace, 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 peace. This new humanity is marked by peace. Now, we've spent a lot of time over the last two years as a church exploring the depths of this word peace. The Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom. Shalom does not mean absence of conflict. That's oftentimes what we think of peace. Like there, there's some tension and then the tension is gone and so now we're in a place of peace. Shalom means wholeness, rightness, righteousness, things functioning properly, working together, everything the way that God intended it to be. We've defined it this way, right? As right relationships between God, between human beings, between humans and the rest of creation. Now, when there's conflict today in our world, we either head in with tanks or we try to ignore it and hope it goes away, right? Binary, two options. But wait, but wait, there is a whole other way. In Christ, something new. People in conflict can be together, can eat a meal together, can serve together, can sing together. And of course, this is just the beginning of what the new humanity means. Now, this new humanity that, that, that Jesus creates in himself, it began when Jesus was here on earth. It began in the people that he had around him. Now, we might think of, uh, when we think of Jesus and his team, we may think of just Jesus and the disciples. And then we think, man, it's just Jesus and 12 guys. And, and that doesn't seem 
all that interesting or diverse. Now the 12 are important for a lot of reasons, not least of which is their symbolism, uh, representing new Israel, right? The people of Israel, 12 tribes, there's 12 disciples, there's a lot of correlation there. But there were way more than 12 people that hung out on a regular basis with Jesus. It was probably more like 70. And of that 70, there were actually probably more women than men. And if you don't believe me, check out Luke chapters 8 and 9 to get a different picture of the group of people that was with Jesus. But among those 12, again, among that symbolic 12, there actually was a great amount of diversity. And I want to give you just one example here today to think about. On Jesus' team, there was a guy named Simon. Simon, uh, there was actually two guys named Simon. One of them, of course, becomes Peter. But then there's this other Simon, Simon the Zealot. And when you read the list of the disciples, it will almost always describe him this way, Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were, to use our modern-day language, a far-left revolutionary group. And they wanted to violently rebel against Roman occupation. They hated Rome, and they also had a special uh, dislike, it's probably putting it kindly, but an intense frustration with their own people who got too deeply involved with Rome. Now, at the top of this list would have been Israelites who served as tax collectors. Tax collectors uh, were basically, in their minds, sellouts. They were throwing their own people under the bus to make a few bucks to try to get rich. So Jesus has this guy, Simon the Zealot, violent uh, left-wing revolutionary. And then he also has a guy named Matthew or Levi, depending on which gospel you're reading, who was a tax collector. Think about this for a moment. The gospel writers don't invite us into the awkwardness here. We don't really get in, you know, um, deep insight into that. And I think one of the reasons is because just simply naming these two guys on this team, the original audience would have immediately understood, like, whoa, that's weird. There must have been some strange, awkward moments as they sat around the campfire, right? Jesus chooses a Wall Street executive and an Occupy Wall Street protester to be on his core team. Think about that for a moment. There they are, working together with Jesus, part of the new humanity. Now, our question here is, well, how does this work? That's that's great, beautiful, idealistic. How does it work? How do two guys who, who would have liked to kill each other end up on the same team? Well, first of all, It's because of Jesus. And I know this sort of feels like an obvious thing to say, but it needs to be said. This was not just a manufactured panel of like, let's get a bunch of different people together and see what happens. No, this is Jesus, the Son of God, and this is who he chose. In Christ, these sorts of things are possible. He is the foundation and where it all starts. So it begins with they're there because there's something compelling about this Jesus. So compelling that they were willing to lay aside some differences. And this gets into the second thing that's, that's important here, practically speaking. Both Simon and Matthew had to give up something. They had to sacrifice in some way to be a part of this community. Simon, as he hears Jesus speak 
about loving your enemies and going the extra mile and turning the other cheek. As he hears Jesus teach about forgiving 70 times 7, uh, about laying down your sword, his worldview is challenged and transformed and his violent solutions are given up, are sacrificed for the sake of this new thing, for peace and this new humanity. Matthew, as he hears Jesus tell stories about the scandalous economics of God's kingdom, about not worrying about what you're going to eat or drink, as he watches Jesus multiply bread and fishes, as he witnesses a fellow tax collector named Zacchaeus pay back four times what he took from people, his self-centered scarcity mentality is challenged and transformed. And his tax collecting ways sacrificed for the sake of peace and the new humanity. In order for shalom to be established, something needs to be given up. Peace comes not from ignoring the conflict or fighting with weapons. It comes through sacrifice. Are you with me? Obviously, Again, foundationally, the sacrifice of Jesus himself on our behalf that we're going to celebrate here in a moment in communion. So the sacrifice of Jesus, but also then our sacrifice on behalf of the new humanity that Jesus is creating. I want to give us three practical sacrifices that we may need to consider. I'm not saying you need to do all three of these things, but just a couple things to think about as we move towards how do we actually do this? How do we live in this kind of community? Some of us, we may need to make an ideological sacrifice for the sake of this new thing that God is doing. Now, that ideological position could be a lot of different things. It could be theological. Uh, it could be political. It could even be structural, right? Like sometimes we have these ideas like church has to look this way. Education has to look this way. Whatever it might be, some of those things may need to be left behind to join in in this new thing that God is doing. Simon the Zealot, I'm sure he thought he had it all figured out and that anybody on the other side was insane to think the way that they did, but then he met Jesus and he discovered the kingdom is even better than that. The kingdom is even better than that. Second, do we need to make a personal sacrifice for the sake of this new thing that God is doing? And what I mean here is for some of us, we may need to give up social capital. We may need to slow down our pace of life. We may need to let go of a relationship or say yes to a new kind of relationship. Matthew and Simon had their communities completely reconfigured in this process of following Jesus. You know, for some of us, this may put us in conflict with family or friends or uh, things like that, but it may also open us up to a whole new group of people, and that is a beautiful thing. Finally, do we need to make some sort of tangible sacrifice? And here we're talking about things like time and money, our possessions, the stuff that we hold on to. Following Jesus into this new humanity of shalom and peace, it cost Matthew and Simon various things. It cost them the ability to pursue other endeavors. It probably hurt their bottom line. It certainly hurt Matthew's bottom line. It cost them something. But it also opened them up to something. 
and it gave them something that they could not find anywhere else. Fellow citizenship, new life, a bigger story. Ultimately, it brought them peace. Peace with God and peace with others. So, as we consider this invitation to participate in the new humanity, to be countercultural, are there some things that we need to sacrifice in order to make this possible? Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful for your sacrifice on our behalf, that because of who you are and what you've done, God coming to us in the person, the flesh and blood of Jesus, laying his life down for us, that we might have peace with, with God, but also peace with each other. And so, God, we desire to participate in this, this new thing, this new humanity with you that you are making through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we know that to fully embrace the new humanity that you are creating, we will need to let go of some things. So, Father, give us the courage this morning to let go of the things that we need to let go of and to say yes to the things that we need to say yes to so that we may fully participate in what you are doing in our world, creating a whole new humanity. God, that vision is compelling and exciting and beautiful, and it doesn't happen just because we, we hope it does. It happens because of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. And it happens when we partner with you in that. So give us the courage to do that, God, and may you give us glimpses of it as we move through this together. God, give us hope that a whole other world is possible. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.